Happy Friday, everyone, and thank you for joining us on Fried Okra, the public education podcast for Oklahomans. I'm Carrie Coppernall Jacobs with the Oklahoma Education Association. And I'm Catherine Bishop, president of the OEA. Fried Okra is a weekly podcast where we get together to talk about public education issues in Oklahoma. We hope you'll join us each and every Friday. Well, this week we have sort of a different show for you. Um, We sat down with Dr. Mary Clark, who is the president of the Oklahoma State Medical Association, um, to talk about kind of where we are with COVID. Yeah, getting to actually sit down and listen to the experts. Yes. And uh, so um, here's our conversation with Dr. Clark. Well, we are thrilled today to have with us uh, Dr. Mary Clark, who's president of the Oklahoma State Medical Association. Dr. Clark, how are you? I'm excellent this afternoon on this beautiful day, and it's nice to be here with you guys. Yes. Well, before we, we wanted to visit with you about um, COVID, as it obviously is an issue that is, continues to take a toll on our public schools. Um, but before we, before we do, for folks who may not be familiar with you, kind of give us a little bit of your background. Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? Where do you practice? That kind of thing. I grew up in Oklahoma City, northwest part of Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. I graduated from uh, Northwest Classen. Oh, awesome. And- That's right from my house. Um, and I graduated college from um, Central State at the time, now UCO, so that puts my age a little bit. I then started at OU in the College of Medicine, but my husband and I, um, because of his training, his PhD program took us to Madison, Wisconsin. So okay. I finished my residency up there, and Stephen had his PhD up there. We finished, then we moved again down to Dallas. Uh-huh. And I practiced in Dallas and, and he worked on a postdoc at UT Southwestern. And when he was finished, we were, Steve, he was basically recruited here to Stillwater, which is where we are uh-huh. and where I have now for 14 years. I am part of the hospital, Stillwater Medical Physicians Group, and I am a family physician. And I am the president, current president, acting president of the Oklahoma State Medical Association and happy to be with you guys today. Well, excellent. I mean, well, this is also a very official question. Um, Are you an OSU fan? That's really Catherine's question. Mm -hmm. Catherine needs to know. Nobody can see it, but our pistols are firing. (laughs) (laughs) They are. Very good. Uh, uh, Yeah, we, everyone says, how can you go into OU and and you're an OSU fan? Well, because... The medical school is in Oklahoma City, not in Norman, so <laughs> I'm an adopted OSU fan. Let's put it that There way. is a clear distinction there. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're diehard OSU fans for sure. Well, so tell us, so let's talk about COVID. Tell us where we are with the Delta variant right now in Oklahoma. Uh, that's a big question. How, right. uh, in what regard? Like, um, are we, what are we seeing? What are you seeing in the hospital? Are you seeing, um, how is the Delta variant affecting you all as medical professionals right now? Okay, so Delta, when Delta was identified, I'll back up just a little bit. When -hmm. Delta was identified and when we look at all of the variants, we start tracking them across whatever country we initially identify them. And Delta started to overtake many um, other viral strains in other countries, including Europe and other places we watch very closely. And we expected that that would be the same case because Delta itself is more infectious. Mm -hmm. It's easier to spread. Um, There are reasons for that. 
um, change and why. And so when that starts to float in the community, it quickly overtakes the more, quote, weaker strains uh-huh. and becomes the one that spreads easier. And so if I can spread to 100 people where the primary variant only spread to two, then uh-huh. eventually it's all Delta. And that's right. effectively what we saw. The other unfortunate thing for Delta, for humans anyway, is that it's more lethal. The mm-hmm. ability to cause serious illness is higher with Delta, and it is we've seen now more lethality in younger people. So initially, when COVID became on the radar, we were seeing the vast majority of people who were 65, chronic health conditions, especially heart and lung issues, and diabetes right. have a higher risk. But in the Delta variant, we've seen it attack young children, which was very unusual with the strains before before Delta. So we've seen younger adults, um, children, our pediatric ICUs have been um, really maxed out because of the wave of Delta. And our young adults, so the 25 to 50 year olds are are not just getting delta but they're also dying at a higher rate and i will also tell you the negative thing about delta unfortunately is that we vaccinated a lot of our 65 and older so they had a lot of protection before even the delta wave kind of started to come through mm-hmm. and even though we do have breakthrough infections with delta um it's it's still the Uh, we're still seeing um, a lot of younger people. Hospitalizations with Delta are still older patients. Uh Dying are still older patients, Uh but um, the vast majority of the people that are in the hospital and are dying are still unvaccinated. So we still know the vaccines work very well, even with the Delta variant. Uh So it's been a, it's been a little, little different in this round, this last two months. So Dr. Clark, uh, current reality, we have a variant that's surging. We have over 600,000 students sitting in classrooms today without the layer protection of a vaccine. How, what do we do to keep our schools safe as possible? That is a good question and is an easy answer if we could just make it happen and that is put a mask on. Mm. If yep. we can get every educator every administrator and every child that is that can that well you know there are some physical mm-hmm. limitations right. sure. wear a mask and we can get 98 percent of our of everyone in the classroom inside wearing a mask that would dramatically lower the spread of all viruses by the way not just covid right. but mm-hmm. everything and we could see a really a significant drop with that and keep it down, by the way. Um, unfortunately, it's, it's hard to do. You know, there's a lot of other things that are playing a role with this. And, um, you know, kids are what they are and people are afraid. And we have a lot of education that we still have to do. But that would do it. That would do it very quickly. And we saw that, remember, when we had no vaccine last year, no vaccine until basically December in the United States of 2020, we saw that when we put everybody in masks in the spring and early summer, numbers went to 
nil. I mean, not exactly right. zero, but they plummeted and stayed down. We let the mask ordinances expire at the end of June, early July in lots of places. And that's when we started to see last year that uptick, that, that you know, slow rise, and then we reinstated masks and those kinds of things gone back and forth. But masking works, it is safe, and it is extremely effective, especially when you cannot vaccinate your, your children under 12. Such a, such a heavy problem with this very simple solution. It is a very, very simple solution. Um, I, 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 it is hard to talk with some people who, who continue to reinforce the, the idea that masks are unsafe for some reason or they don't work, but that's really because they're not, they're not understanding some of the things that the, the educators and physicians and scientists have been saying. And, and you know, to a certain extent, I wouldn't always expect everybody to know everything I do. Um, but right. we are having a hard time getting the, the message out in a manner where people feel comfortable and confident about. And I, I, we're, we, we have had some problem with that, for sure. So when we think about this, this school year, the start of this school year versus the start of last school year, how, how does the Delta variant come into play? How, how is that something that, um, how does that change what we should be doing? Compared last or, year to this year? Yeah, or does it? Or is it? I don't think it this? changes at all. Yeah. Uh, the, the answer is the same. Get mm -hmm. vaccinated if you can, 12 and older, and wear a mask if you can't be vaccinated or for some reason those unusually rare cases where someone cannot be vaccinated. There sure. are cases. It is not a lot of people, but if we can keep everybody safe, those few that cannot be vaccinated or cannot wear a mask because of physical limitations, those we're going to protect them too. And that's what this is really all. That's what we keep trying to say. It's not just about me. It's about everyone around me. It's about our whole society. So why there, there are still, there are still folks, I mean, we've all learned the term vaccine hesitancy. Um, why, um, what would you say to folks who are, who are still feeling um, unsure about it? My approach is, first of all, you have to have a good working relationship with your patient. I find, and we've discussed this in, in our kind of group in our, in our clinic, that the patients that, that trust us, that have seen us for a time, mm -hmm. they may not be running out immediately to go get their shot, sure. but asking us questions and, and listening to what we have to say, they may not say, roll up my sleeve today, give me my shot, yeah. but... Yeah they're going to go home and they're gonna to start to think about it. And when they read or hear family, friends, or hear something that um, is, is a little kind of off the wall and, and maybe doesn't make sense, then they're gonna be more likely to, likely to stop and say, well, you know, that doesn't really make sense. Yeah. Maybe I should think about this a little more instead of just kind of falling down the rabbit hole yeah. and, and being reinforced, the, kind of the negative reinforcement of some of these things that we're hearing about. So finding where your patient's starting from and, and helping them understand and bring them to you. Yeah. Um, we as physicians don't always do that particularly well. 
you know, we like to say, here's your diagnosis and here's what you need to do. And um, I'll see you back in three months and yeah. you know, spend a little time talking, but maybe we can start the conversation. Well, what do you think about um, that? When I called you and said that you have diabetes now, how, what, you know, how does that, how do we get you over that hurdle? How do we work with you to make that better? And you start with them to help you make the decision. How do, how do we fix that? They, they are part of the answer. And if you know where people are starting from, you don't have to hit them with negative negativity all the time. We can still be positive with that, but I don't care where I'm starting from. I'm starting from 23 years of experience, 11 years of medical education on top of that. That is irrelevant. I need to know where the patient is starting from and how do we make them comfortable and do better with their own health. And that goes with COVID, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. I really think it does. Yeah, really meeting people where they're at. Dr. Clark, you hit on it just a little bit, but I want to kind of dig a little deeper about um, how do the vaccines, uh, masks help not just ourselves, but when we talk about our school communities, the uh, importance of that, uh, especially for those that may not be eligible to get a vaccine yet. We have lots of data and you guys probably have more specific information than I do. And we talk about this in our circles as well because of our pediatric patients that we see all the time. Um, we want children in class. The socialization, mm -hmm. um, the learning potential is just not the same for humans yep. if I stick you in front of a camera all yep. day. Mm -hmm. It is not none. I, I mean, you know, you sure. do the best you can when we sure. were in a pandemic last year. You do, we, we did the best we could. But everyone agrees for the vast majority of children and anyone learning in person is going to be the best for you. There are exceptions. So I don't want anyone to get mad at me for that, <laughs> but there are exceptions. Sure. And that is important. That should be everyone's goal to get to the classroom safely. Now, in the past, if we had a um, chicken pox outbreak, let's say 15 years ago, because we haven't had that in a long time, um, you would close the classroom, send everybody home for two weeks until they're better, um, scrub the classroom down. Uh, the teachers would probably be okay because they have they have pretty good immunity. This virus is different than COVID, so don't, don't make that exact analogy, but we would be able to do that. And that was no problem. We had no issue. This is an issue. This is an infectious disease. We're closing everything down. Go home. I'll see you back in two weeks. Yeah. Now we have kids that unfortunately may not know they have COVID because up to 40% don't know, have any symptoms. So yeah. oops. Now we're spreading it and we don't know it. It's not malicious and it's not being mean. It's not people not wanting to do the right thing, but they don't know. Right. So we don't know that we have 14 kids in a classroom with chicken pox because nobody has symptoms. And we're just going to continue to spread it, not only in that class, but, oh, that kid's going to go home. And we're going to spread it to the kids that are in high school because they, you know, our, our the first child A is in grade school and they're going to take it to high school and then we're going to start spreading it to high schools and colleges and whatever. Um, COVID is just so different from other viruses because of the ability for it to not have any symptoms at all that 
it is just, it sneaks around and, and we don't know it. I always laugh. Here's here, a little funny thing I tell my patients. The one thing, what's the one thing that COVID does not have that many viruses do? What? A rash. It doesn't, does it? We don't really see, there's a few, yeah. very, a few cases, there are a few yeah. vascular things, but um, but it really doesn't have a particularly obvious, yeah. like pox rash, measles rash, butterfly uh, rash. Okay, right. if we had had something like that that was easily identifiable, then this would be a little bit less of an issue because we can, we can quickly yeah. quarantine those who are identified, but we don't have that. So it's sneaking around every nook and cranny and tricking us and we're accidentally spreading it around. So yeah. we want kids in school because that's how they're going to learn. And yeah. especially younger kids, if we miss that opportunity for two or three years and we continue to keep going back and forth like this, then that may really affect them throughout the rest of their educational experience. But we have to keep them healthy because we don't want to harm our students either. Right. We want to do the best education, but we want everybody safe. And oh, by the way, let's not forget our teachers. Right, right. Absolutely. How many teachers have been ill and died from COVID? We, you know right. what, we actually just did a member survey and um, about one in three, I think I'm remembering right, of our of our survey respondents said that they've had COVID. Yeah. You know, it it is not, everybody is in the same boat. We mm -hmm. are a domino effect, much as we don't want to talk about COVID anymore. This is a domino effect across our entire society and economic livelihood everywhere. So no one's immune. Yeah, it's not just an education issue. It is a community health issue. It affects everyone. And if those kids at that age have, you know, been shortchanged for long enough, you guys can back me up. We know that their long-term educational success is going to be limited. We know this. We have all kinds of data on this all over. So if... If that occurs, because we can't get this right and keep kids safe, then they're not going to be as productive 10, 15, and 20 years down the road. And how does that affect your long-term economy and your next generation of the next educators? Uh -huh. It is so not a, all I gotta do is get past today. Well, that's one thing we do gotta get past today, but this is a long, you know, decades long issue that if we don't get this right safely, we are going to be dealing with these issues 20 years from now and looking back and said, well, we should have done this. And, and we don't have to do that. So, I mean, you're, so you're kind of touching on something else that we wanted to ask about. What does the end look like? What, what is, what is back to normal? Can it be tomorrow? Um, what is, how do we even know when we've reached, when we've reached the finish line? Is there a finish line? Um, I am going to go out on a limb and say there's probably not going to be a finish line. That's at least what most of the scientific um, kind of discussion is at this point. I, I, we, I just don't think, now we could be wrong. Mm -hmm. it, it could it's going to continue to mutate because we know that. So right. in general, most viruses that mutate like this as quickly as we see it, the mutations don't usually over time become less deadly and less infectious. 
Yeah. So yeah. we are expecting that that's going to continue to mutate and become more infectious and more deadly and, and trick our vaccines potentially. Okay. So if that is the case, then there really will be no finish line. We will be learning about it, finding the next strain, figuring out what it is. Does it, is it covered well by the vaccine I just got two weeks ago? Yeah. Or will I need another vaccine in six months yeah. when, yeah. when this really, when strain X, whatever, uh, becomes the dominant strain? It is uh, very, very difficult to figure that out, obviously, because it is a new virus. I have a lot of people who try and make an analogy with COVID to chickenpox, primarily chickenpox. Chickenpox seems to be the one thing that a lot of people make an analogy to. But chickenpox does not mutate like COVID. I can give a vaccine that I gave 20 years ago for chickenpox today, and it's still going to work. That is as much as I'd love for that to happen with COVID, that is not going to happen with COVID. So I, we don't really anticipate a finish line. Um, we anticipate uh, at some point in time, different boosters, different strains. It, 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 is, um, it is such a fascinating, unusual virus that uh, unless we have new technology, I mean, we could have, you know, five years from now, there could be some wonderful breakthrough that we come up with and that's possible but with what we have right now that's that's not likely going to happen yeah. well i'm just kind of like whoo that was that was hard news to that was hard to hear and, and i don't want to equate it to the flu but it's we're going to have to get in that mindset of we take a flu shot every year we okay. have to do mm -hmm. that so yes. um help us bust some myths that are out there. Um, Excellent. But, Bring them on. <laughs> what was, what, what's the biggest one that you, as a physician, have to? One? No, just, you could give what's me a whole bunch one? if you want. <laughs> yeah, what are like the comp, like what are ones what? that you've heard in your practice, like that you've okay. had to walk through with patients? Um, I would say one of the most common is the, thought that it causes infertility. Yeah. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, that got a little bit of a start for numerous reasons, some social reasons, um, uh, understandably so, in certain uh, populations of color, skepticism and mm -hmm. understandably so. Right. There was a paper early on, I think it was out of Germany, if I'm not mistaken, that potentially linked the, the antibody to uh, the vaccine as a similar protein in the placenta of a in utero fetus that your body may kill off the fetus and cause you know miscarriages. Um, that has been absolutely shown to not be true. Um, we have some, um, and this infertility also got magnified by some social media that kind of took it and snowballed that it's going to change your DNA. Never would that happen. Right. Social um, media would never do that. Right. <laughs> right. Well, 
I explain this, and I have this is probably the, the one I spend most time on with, especially my younger patients. Being a female, I have a lot of female young women and, and even older women. Um, when we have to back up for just a minute and go back to birth, so we're going all the way back to our birth as females, we effectively are born with all the eggs and fertility that we have in our lifetime. We don't produce more eggs. We don't change our fertility. All of that is, is built in the day we're born. We don't m multiply, we don't split eggs, we don't, nothing. Yeah. That yeah. where it is and, and that's it, okay? Anything that we introduce into our body has no possibility to be introduced into the ovary or an egg because it is not doing anything. It's not possible, mm -hmm. okay? That egg is just sitting around. It's, it's half of the genetic material waiting for sperm Mm -hmm. to come along, right? That half of the material is just sitting there. There, It does not, the only thing that changes the, the, the DNA structure in effectively in an ovary, there's a few others, but is basically radiation, right? Mm -hmm. So if I irradiate somebody, I'm going to damage yeah. your, I'm going to damage your, your genetic material. So yeah. I mean, that's potentially a problem, but no vaccine, there is no way to integrate anything into there because it is not dividing. It's not doing anything. It is yeah. basically inert, just hanging around. Yeah. So the idea that these vaccines integrate somehow into an ovary and cause infertility, if you step back and explain some of this to patients, and they stop and think, oh, that's right. And they think back yeah. to their, you know, college mm -hmm. education classes and high school classes. And they think, oh, right, right. Um, and it starts to make a little more sense. But we forget some of those basic science things that are kind of fun, but come back around as we talk about interesting things. As, you know, so the infertility is probably the most in interesting one I come across. Um, Everything else is kind of um, six of one, half of the other. I have some people who say, um, you know, I still have people say that they're nano chipping people so that the government can track you. Um, what, a, what about the, the, the myth? And because I've heard this one with the flu every year. Um, can the vaccine give you COVID? Okay. Absolutely not. And that's because this vaccine and many other vaccines mm -hmm. do not have virus particles. Virus particles are actually very, very, very big in the scheme of things. When we're talking about molecular structures and vaccines, they're very big. Um, they're unstable in outside a host, basically. And they're hard to make somewhat difficult to make vaccines out of. Now there are some, so I'm don't don't get me wrong, it's not impossible. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, vaccines, the vast majority of vaccines are pieces of the virus, wherever, okay, whatever piece that is, pick one, that your body recognizes and is tricked into thinking that's a whole virus, mm -hmm. when in reality it's not. 
it then starts your immune process and mounts your immune process, which is why people feel crummy after they get vaccines at yeah. times because your yeah. body thinks you're sick. Right. Um, and so, so there's no viral particle possible to infect anything. So this vaccine, this current, especially the mRNA vaccines, they are not whole viruses. They are not whole DNA. They are not whole anything. They cannot replicate and they cannot multiply. So it's very important to, for people to understand some of the science behind uh, vaccines. Vaccine science is really very cool. Of course, I would say that, but. <laughs> <laughs> I think yeah, it's been fascinating to to hear about it, look, listen about it, learn about it. Um, that, you know, and it, it's made sense. Like every time I would get a flu shot, I'd be like, oh, I feel so yucky the next day. But now I know it's just my body. It's my body right. saying like I'm building up, you know, antibody, I'm building immunities up. And that's just how we, I, right. I think it's made kind of a, a reset on how we think about things and um, hopefully in the vaccine. Do you, do you all remember the sugar cube back in the day and they give you mm -hmm. Cube with the polio, the little pink. Yeah, Carrie, you're too young. You're too I, young. I don't that. remember that, but but I've never <laughs> well, had, had polio. Shot, so thank you had the shots. Um, um, well, I am old enough to know. Um, the sugar cube is uh, the the po that's the polio, the oral polio vaccine. That was one of the first ones that we had for in a long time, right? Because that was one of the first kind of instigators of vaccines. The in a large scale was the polio vaccine. Well, that vaccine was actually a live, what we call a live attenuated virus. It was a polio virus that we all gulped down. And what, what was done to it is you chemically um, take out the genetic material that makes it replicate effectively. Okay. Mm -hmm. It does not, we still have, you still have the whole virus particle. Mm -hmm. You have some of the DNA inside, but you don't have the, the ability to get it to manufacture it, reproduce itself, make billions of copies. Yeah. These uh, live attenuated virus in the old days like that did have a possibility of reverting to wild type and causing polio. Oh, wow. We did that. Right. One in, I don't know. I, I don't even know the numbers now. Yeah. Millions, tens of millions. Okay. Yeah. yeah. In, in all of my career, in all of my education, I've never seen a case of it. it so yeah. that was something that you just, we accepted. One in 10 million people is acceptable if I can keep people from these kids having iron lungs and having yeah. lifelong disability. So we didn't think anything of that because of how bad polio epidemic was at the time and especially yeah. in children dying so we took we will accept one in 10 million mm. possibility and we will treat all of our children to get past the polio epidemic and we did um, now it's safer it's not a live attenuated virus anymore but I use that as an example that at the times when we are faced with certain death and we are looking at it in large numbers in the face. We are going to, on the medical side, accept a certain amount of risk. Every day, every day, we do this every day. Right. I could give someone a medicine tomorrow that might cause an anaphylactic reaction and have them in the hospital. 
It's possible. Um, in these kinds of large scale illness, public health issues and, and death, there are certain risks that we should as a society accept as a, to protect from everybody else dying. Yeah. We, that, is a, that, is, that is part of our society makeup. That is part of our public health. And I'm going to take the risk myself. I rolled my sleeve up, got my two COVID vaccines at the very beginning, two yep. weeks after they were cleared. I also got my COVID booster almost two weeks ago. So, you know, these are the things that we accept as a culture and a society so that we can protect everyone else around us. And we're going to do it. What's the likelihood of me having a really severe reaction to a, to a vaccine? Very, very, very low. Right. But someone's going to find that one person and say, see, that's what happens. Yep. I've saved hundreds of thousands of people. It is, it is the acceptable risk that we take because there is nothing that is 100% in, our, in, in medicine. Nothing. There is nothing that will ever be 100%. Oh, wait, I got one. I'm sorry. I do. I just popped up one. Smallpox. We eradicated smallpox. So that's, that's true. And Carrie, I'm old enough to have the the, the, scar, the scar from it. And so I bet you don't have that scar, do you, Carrie? I do not. I do not. Why? Because you didn't have to take it. See? Right. So, thank you. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Dr. Clark, <laughs> for doing that. So I didn't have to. I, I did when I was little. I was we were all lined up to take the polio vaccine. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's how every vaccine was going to be from that point on. And it was not. And so, <laughs> are we doing this as a group? I, know. Oh, all my well, I thought, you know, oh, stick something under my tongue. This is the way to go. Yeah, this, is, but, this is great. Yeah. Sure right. You want to do what? No. no. <laughs> well, we, we appreciate all the information and we appreciate Dr. Clark, your service and everybody who is um, part of the Oklahoma State Medical Association, you all are you all are doing the true servant leadership, and we appreciate you. Um, we appreciate your time, but we appreciate you every day, especially in the past year and a half. Well, I I am I am so proud of our educational system. There is nothing perfect. Uh, I'm, I, medical system is not perfect, mm -hmm. but the, the love and the intense joy, despite adversity, despite educators being sick and dying, putting themselves at risk, the, the absolute drive to be the best educational system they can is is why you know the United States has a great system. Um, we don't give up, it, even if you know everybody keeps saying you know give up. We just we we are not built to fail, and we can do it better. And you keep working, and despite the fact that it's stressed, and you know we're on video again, and no one's listening right now, and we're all upset, and the kids are home, and they're driving parents up the wall, and. I mean, all of those things have occurred in the last year and a half, and, and the educators have not given up. That is a testament to some of the most stressful jobs. People think my job is stressful. 
my job is not stressful <laughs> compared to educators. Um, you know, I can control my office. If you don't want to wear a mask, don't come into my office. It, it, it's not difficult. Yes, we work long hours. Yes, there's a lot of things going on, but educators are some of the heroes that we forget about every day. They are going to take care of the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. Because if we don't have that two or three generations down, we don't have a society. Okay. Educators have to be the number one part. I say this, I'm going to give you, my husband's a professor at the university. So we're in education and healthcare. So, I, but who educated me? Yeah. I mean, we can't do anything if it's not someone to teach us how to do things as we go forward. Farmers, how do farmers become farmers? They are educated by their multiple generations. You have to have people to, to get us as a child to where we are to be you know, a, a working adult through our life. And if you don't have that, there will be no society. I am fully believe education is the absolute pinnacle of every successful society. So anytime someone talks to me about education and you know that educators don't get paid enough, I'm always on the educator side, always, 100%. <laughs> oh my goodness, Dr. Clark, I my heart is full. And um, thank you for those kind words. Uh, and she didn't um, pay me to say that. So just <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, I, I, <laughs> we are so appreciative of your kind words. And thank you for being here with us today. It was great having you. 